Morning, everyone. Wow, what a wonderful morning. Great time of worship, wasn't it? By the way, every, hi, everybody on live stream. Nice to see you. Well, I'm not seeing you, but I hope it's nice seeing me. Anyway, we're continuing with our series, um, My Story, which is the eyewitness accounts of Jesus or the encounters of people with Jesus who were named in the gospel. Many people were named, many people weren't. For example, 10 lepers got healed. None of them got named. One blind man, blind Bartimaeus, got healed. He got named. Why? Well, that's what we're exploring. So today we're looking at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this is quite a long reading this morning because uh, we're putting two, uh, two portions of Scripture into one in different places of the Bible. But it's a really good read, and then as we engage with it, I'll unpack it a bit. Is that all right? Okay, let's go. Well, here we go. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord... Don't you care? My sister has left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about so many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what's better, and it won't be taken away from her. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the Lys sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God, so God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Just make a note of that. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when they heard that Lazarus was dead, he stayed two more days. And then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And, he had to, and, he had to, and after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had, had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was more than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know now even God will give you whatever you ask for. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me, even though we die, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, Jesus replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. This is Martha's sister now. She'd come out to see Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus moved deeply, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you've sent me. When Jesus had sent this, he said, he, Jesus called in a loud name, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Then Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. There were many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and see what Jesus did, and they believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and after that, they plotted to kill him. That was a turning point in the life of Jesus and his ministry on earth. Right, let me get to the beginning of this. Okay, let's look at the background. Who were these people, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? Well, they were two sisters and a brother. They were a family unit together. No mention of the parents. Uh, I guess we can presume that uh, they've died. It's not unlikely that this was, uh, these were younger people. Uh, remembering that many of Jesus' followers were young, it, it might be surprised to us that they, most of them would have been in their later teens, probably very early 20s, when they were called to be their disciples. They weren't these old men with sticks and gray beards. That was the end of their life. But at the beginning of their life, they were, they were youngsters. Um, it looks like they may well have lived in one house, but we don't know. Certainly Mary and Martha lived in one house. Lazarus might have had his own, but they hung out with each other a lot. That's very clear. They would have uh, had a degree of um, financial stability or wealth, uh, maybe inherited wealth, because Lazarus was buried in a tomb, probably a family tomb. Only the wealthy people were able to have caves with stones that rolled about there. Remember, it speaks of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who put Jesus in his own tomb. So it would have been the wealthier people who would have had their own 
personal grave, and that's why everybody knew where it was. Um, why are Mary and Martha and Lazarus mentioned in this passage of Scripture? Was so many, many, many people who Jesus healed and touched actually uh, weren't mentioned. But there, I mean, there's a lot of people who are, as we know, but many weren't. Well, it's because they were eyewitnesses to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this wasn't just any any regular miracle in Jesus' life. You know, he healed the blind, he healed the leper, he healed the deaf. But this miracle, the raising of the dead, not only was a miracle that restored a dead man to life, that brought hope and comfort back to grieving sisters, that actually, I, I'm, we're assuming now that Lazarus was a younger man, but actually gave back many years to Lazarus, but not only was it a remarkable miracle, but it was a statement. This miracle was a theological statement. This miracle was a statement about who Jesus was and the authority and the purpose he'd come to earth. It gave credibility to the claims of Jesus that he had authority over life, authority over death. It gave claims to Jesus that he was the Son of God, the sent one, the Messiah sent into the world. It gave claims to Jesus about what he testified and taught and said about life and what happens when you die. Is there a life after death? Is there a heaven to lose or a heaven to gain? Is there such a thing? Is there? Oh, that's just your opinion, Jesus. We're not quite sure. Even within the religious groupings of the time, they had the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. But Jesus was claiming that, yes, there is a life on earth, but when our temporary bodies fail and fall and break and die, there is still a life to live. For when you were created, you were created in the image of God, in the eternal God, to live forever. Oh, I just think you're making it up, Jesus. But this is a miracle that has, authenticates Jesus' teaching, his claims, not only about what he says about life after death, and the fundamental message of Jesus and the Christian message, but it is an it is a authentic, credible authentication of who Jesus is. That here is a man, flesh and blood, who gets thirsty and hungry, who wakes in the morning to get tired at night and have to sleep. Here is a man who has authority over death and can call back to life a man who has been dead and buried for four days. Now, we have a lot of wonderful medics in this church, and I know that so many of you who had to go through a medical procedure or hospital are grateful for the gift of medicine and the skill of the doctors, and they have a passion to preserve and save life. And occasionally, when somebody has died and their time span has not gone on too long, they're able to resuscitate them. 
But they don't, with all of their skill and medical ability, there is not a person on the planet who has authority over death. But there is one who was and is and is yet to come, who was a flesh and blood human being, and his name is Jesus. And in his humanity, he made some claims that he was God himself, and in his humanity, he authenticated and evidenced that claim to be true by saying, in the dead, in the grave, four days, four days after that, I still can pull you back from death itself, and your body is not rotted. I love the King James Version that says, take him out of the grave. And, Jesus, and, and, and Martha says, Lord, he's been in there four days and he stinketh. <laughs> because he was rotting well past the point of resuscitation. Last, and with one word, with one word, with the same authoritative voice, that said, let there be light, and there was light and life on earth. With the same authoritative voice, he spoke, and light came into the darkness of that cave and the darkness of his dying and dead soul and brought him back to life. The authority of God's creative, life-giving word. And so, why was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus named is because they were to be eyewitnesses of this account. And it was so incredible that the Jews after that decided to kill him. So what can we say about this? Here we are. These three brothers and sisters were put in the New Testament because the New Testament is not just a sacred book. It is a history book. It is a source, and a credible source of evidence, of fact. It is a book of facts and evidence to the historical claims, messages, words, life of Jesus Christ and his followers. It is not just a sacred text. And the people in this book were named. They were known. And they had a location. There was a Mary, a Martha, and a Lazarus. They lived in a place that you could go to called Bethany. Their house was known. The tomb was known. People turned up to the house to mourn and comfort. They went to the tomb to mourn and comfort. It was a place you could go to. It was people that you could see. And so when we talk about the claims of Christ and when Jesus was risen again, in the early years of the apostles, and they said there was, a, there was a man called Lazarus, and Jesus raised him from the dead, and this was an authentication that he was the Son of God, he was God in human flesh, he died and rose again himself, and they said, oh, this is just fairy tale and Chinese whispers and myth and legend. He said, no, no, go and talk to the people who saw it. Go and sit down and have a, well, 
I don't know what they drank in those days. <laughs> Go and sit down and see and listen and hear the story. Go to the villagers that lived in the town of Bethany who were at the graveside. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus will tell you who they are. You can go and search out the facts for yourself. We're not asking you just to believe in a fantasful faith. We're asking you to believe in a faith that is based on fact and evidence. And the writers of the scriptures wrote the scriptures so that we could know the way of God and engage in our relationship and discover his will and purpose for a life, but it's also a credible source of evidence to give credibility not only to the claims of Christ, but credibility to your faith. So from a home in Bethany... There is an authentication of the historical account, not Chinese whispers. So it's also a book. It, these people were in the scriptures as well so that we could know them and we could grow in our insight and instruction in what it is to follow Christ. So a few comments. What do we learn about this for ourselves apart from an evidence for our faith? Firstly, they were friends of Jesus. Jesus had friends. He just didn't have followers. He just didn't have disciples. But he had friends. How did they become his friends? Well, maybe they'd heard about Jesus and they wanted to honor him and celebrate him and they invited him to a party or to a social night or to a dinner. And because Jesus was not just a Because Jesus was highly relational, because he was human, he said, yeah, I'd love to come to your house for dinner. I mean, isn't that what happens? If, if one of you in, hung out and chatting in the car park this morning and s built up a conversation, hey, why didn't you come over for a coffee or come for a barbecue or come for a dinner? Or why didn't you come to the picnic? And you go, yeah, I'd love to come and hang out. Why? Because you're a human being and you are made for relationships. And Jesus was a man who was God and he is highly relational. Uh, this is the challenge that we have about Jesus sometimes. That in the Hollywood movies and the scripts that we see on telly and the portrays, we see Jesus as some kind of religious mystic that is distant from people, who's just a sage, who gives instructions, but he's a highly relational person. He loved them. He wept for them. He laughed with them. He ate with them. He went into the intimacy of their home and hang, hung out with them, and he enjoyed it. Why? Because he's a human being. Do you like hanging out with your friends? Do you look forward to it? Like on a Friday night and you've been working all week and go, oh, I'm going out with so-and-so tonight or going down their place and having dinner. It's nice, isn't it? You look forward to it because you're a human being. You're made that way. You're made for this intimate relationship with people you care for and people you connect with. And Jesus connected with these guys and he really liked them. And he went there. Often he would say, oh, you can read in the scripture that he went there deliberately. Why? He just wanted to go and hang out. And that's the nature of who he is. He liked them a lot. And he loved Lazarus and his sisters. 
And this was Jesus reflecting the heart of God. We're made in his image. He was living it out, what it was like to be godly. Let me tell you, you may think and feel, as we often do, that the most godly thing you can do is to pray and to read your Bible and to serve God in some particular way that he's called you to and you know, live a holy life. and All those things are important. But can I tell you, the most godlike thing you can do is to be relational and have mature, healthy friendships. Shall I tell you why? Because God, even before he created the world, even before he had a mission on earth, even before the first star was in place, even before, get this, this always does my head, even before space existed, because uh, space was created so that we could actually, stuff, matter could be placed within it, even before anything existed, there was only one reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they were just enjoying one another's company. They were highly relational. Jesus says, oh, bring these guys into the love that I've shared with you and you've shared with me and let them come into it. It's like this wonderful, intimate, relational oneness and so when God created humanity and says, let us make man in, the, in our image, and it says in, in the Genesis, let us make man in our, not my, our, our image, he, he's made you relational. So, so what, it is, what it is to be like God? What is it to be like God? It's to have relationships that reflect the love and the beauty and the unity and the joy and the laughter and the pleasure of the Trinity. It's the most godly thing you can do. And the most ungodly things we can do is the stuff that spoils that. And that's why the first commandment is love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Love, love. And Jesus was... Loving these guys and hanging out with them because he was working out what it is to be the image of God in the form of a human being for our example. And that's why he had disciples. He, said, he says he brought his disciples to himself. And then he appointed them apostles. Apostles means sent one. Come to me first in this community, this gang of brothers and pals that do life together. And then, uh, but out of that, he gave them a task. Friendship first, then the task. Relationship first. God has become a friend of mankind, and yet he is still the Lord, the teacher, the master, the God of all creation. And we have become friends of God through our faith in him, and he is your friend. Isn't that fabulous? And so this speaks of how we can engage with God and how God, through Jesus, engages with us. It also speaks about how we do church and the value of relationship church. From the very beginning of Cornerstone Church, we, we had this statement, Cornerstone is a relational church. That's one of our high values and always has been. Um, we meet, but we're not a meeting. We have a service, but we're not a service. We're a community. We're a family. And we can take it for granted sometimes 
But we must never, ever, ever turn church into a service, a ritual, whether it's ancient or modern. But we must always keep it as a bunch of people who are in a relationship with Jesus doing life together. Friendship, community matters. And over the years, the way that we have done church and the way we have taught about church and even raised ministry has actually sometimes cut across that. And it hasn't been what God has intended. I remember being in Bible college, listening to a lecturer, when one of the, the lecturer and the senior leaders there said, as a pastor, you can't have friends over the church that you lead. And of course, back then in the day in our 20s, we all believed it. Over the course of time, we think, that's a load of rubbish. Because if I can't have friends in the church that I lead, I am unable and authentically be able to reflect the God who's called me and to reproduce himself in our lives together. It's a nonsense, isn't it? So let's never let go of the fact that Jesus is in relationship with us. We're in relationship with him. He loves it, and we're in relationship to each other. And this is what it is to become a, this is what it is to be godly and to reflect Christ. It's what it is to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. All of the disciples worked it out in community together. Friends, but they were still disciples. It says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet. And this was the posture of a disciple. She was a friend who was a follower. Um, a radically scandalous thing that she actually was a disciple. Because in those days it was forbidden for women to be a disciple. Uh, it was forbidden for a woman to listen to a rabbi's teaching. It was thought that women were incapable of such understanding. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> oh, dear, dear. That shows how dull men are. <laughs> that they hadn't captured on how bright they are. <laughs> and it was considered dangerous for women to seek knowledge. Because they thought, well, Eve desired the knowledge of good and evil. And look what that led us. So they actually thought it was dangerous to let a woman have knowledge. But here... Jesus says about Martha, the disciple, hey, Martha says, uh, Martha says, tell Jesus to help me with all the cooking. And he says, oh no, <laughs> she's chosen to learn, be my disciple, be one of my followers, one of my servants, one of my ministry people, and that's the, I'm not going to take that from her. I mean, it's not what you're doing, it's not important, but you can join in too, this is the better. Come and Come and jump in the boat, Martha. And so these friends that he loved so dearly were disciples. It's absolutely incredible. And we can all have a friendship with God. It speaks about Moses, that he spoke to Moses face to face. Awesome God intimate in relationship. He's still the God over our lives, but he's an intimate friend. And having a friend, and yet we're also being a disciple, means that he will always do his things his way. It talks about uh, Jesus. 
in the Lord's Prayer when they say, oh, teach us how to pray. In other words, teach us how to relate to God and be in relationship with God. And he says, when you pray, he didn't say, oh, pray, awesome, mighty, sovereign God. He prays, Father, relationship first. In fact, the actual Aramaic word is the language that he chose was daddy or papa. Beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's the language of little children. You know, you, you start with daddy, and then you go to dad. <laughs> you know? Daddy. And dad. And teenagers shift from daddy to dad because they're a bit embarrassing about the intimacy of it. But when Jesus says pray, pray, papa, daddy. He talks about the openness and the tenderness and the intimacy of heart. And then the next, the next line is, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you see how it works? I'm, I'm in this lovely, tender relationship with the Jesus who's my friend and awesome God. And, and yet I'm submitting my life to his kingdom and his will. And the, as these two marry together, we find this beautiful chemistry and integration of what it is to be a friend of God and overcome by his war, awe and wonder and power and majesty. So to be a friend of God means we just need to continue to be submitting our hearts that he does it his way. When Lazarus, his friend, was dying, he waited for him to die. I think Mary and Martha would have had a lot of questions at that moment in time. We've sent a message, why isn't he coming? I thought he loved us. I thought he was our friend. I thought he cared. Surely he couldn't be too busy for his friends. Surely we, 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 you know, surely do we not matter to him anymore? I mean, doesn't it really matter when the rubber hits the road, whether your friends turn up for you? He's not turning up. All the questions that have gone through their minds as a human being. But he was acting he loved them, but he was the sovereign God and he had a greater purpose at work through their lives that wouldn't only just affect their lives the immediate people around them, but right through the generations. And that's why we're talking about this now. And so there is this need to embrace the friendship of God and the sovereignty of God at the same time and the will of God and the greater purpose. This wasn't a lack of compassion that he allowed him to die or he waited a long time, even though I know it would have been agonizing for them at the time, but it wasn't a lack of, lack of compassion. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, so the sisters sent word to him, Lord, the one you love is dying. And then she went when she saw Jesus, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What are you, what are you playing at? I thought you loved us. And Mary said the same thing. But Mary, first time, when she heard Jesus turn up, Martha heard Jesus turn up, she wouldn't go out. I don't think she could meet him. I think she had to get over some of her stuff to go out and meet him. Mind she was maybe feeling a bit too hurt. I think that's very human. But she eventually went there. And what did she say? Not thank goodness you're here. Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Kind of blaming, I think. Understandable. But Jesus isn't fazed by it. And it says, Jesus, when he saw this, wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind heal this guy? I mean, they're thinking the same stuff. But Jesus was working out a greater purpose and plan. He says to his disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there that you may believe and see the glory of God. So a friendship with Jesus is to know him intimately and be brave enough to trust him as Lord. That he knows what he's doing in our lives, even though we don't have all the answers. To be a friend of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus is to live with not having all the answers immediately all the time. It's, it's living with mystery sometimes. And it's certainly not having our own way all the time. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. But it does mean that he's at work and trusting he's at work in our lives, in our children's lives, in our marriages, our family, our work, our church life, and our own walk with God. He's always working. We sing this song, you're working, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. That's what it is to be in relationship with Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. To be a friend of Christ is to be his servant as well. And we can integrate these two things. It's trust. It's surrender to his will, his way, his timing. Timing is a funny thing with the Lord, isn't it? You know, I've seen people, I pray for people and they've been healed in a moment. I pray for people and they haven't been healed in a moment. They've been healed on the drive home in the car. I pray for people. And they've been wake up the following day and they've been healed. I pray for people. I remember praying for the man in the garage of my wife's car. I prayed for him about seven times. I left him in tears and he was, he was in agony with his garage mechanic. And uh, he, I thought, oh, this hasn't worked. And he woke up the following day and he was healed. And he phoned me a week later and said, oh, I, just, I, I kept, kept phoning you off, phoning through a week to make sure it was real. And he was, he was healed. I've seen, I pray for people and sometimes people haven't happened and they've gone to the Lord trusting him. We continue to trust, we continue to love. And we know that ultimately all of our prayers will be answered and made complete when the resurrection happens, when Christ returns and those of us who trusted him will be risen to live with him forever and we'll all get our bodies of choice. <laughs> be great, won't it? We learn through these named friends of Jesus how God reveals himself to people. Okay. God works through people to reveal himself. Humans were created to reveal who God is to everybody and all creation. There's a, there's a verse in Genesis that says this. Let us make man in our image that they may rule. In other words, let us make man in our image that they may be our representative or God, the representative of God on earth. Do you know, the reason you have breath in your lungs is to represent who God is like and what his rule is. God does very, very, very little on earth except through people. 
He can do things sovereignly, but he made human beings that he wouldn't have to. He wanted to share not just his, who he is with them, but his rulership with them. Let us make man in our image that they may rule. Delegated authority. That's why you're here on earth. And as we do good stuff, good stuff happens. And as we don't, we don't. And as we mess up, it gets messed up. And as we pray, more of his kingdom comes. As we work from it, more of it comes on earth. More of his, but he does it through people. Through people. He doesn't write signs in the sky. Many people have said to me, oh, if I have a sign from God, I'll believe in him. Well, this passage of Scripture teaches us, like many other passages of Scripture, that God does give signs, but he always gives them through people. Now, we don't like that. We want God to just, like, turn up sovereignly, but he doesn't because he's made, the way he's chosen to operate on earth is through people. Let us make man in our image that they may be our representative and that they, our rule of God may come through them on earth. That's the way it works. He always does it that way. From Adam and Eve to the prophets, even to Jesus. Ah, okay, Jesus, God, decided to do an amazing work on earth through a human being made in his image. His name was Jesus. Jesus came as a man to show how God works on earth. And it was so human, so ordinary, that even as we learned from Sarah last week, his brothers didn't believe in him until he was risen from the dead. So here's the challenge. If we want people to find Christ, and if you want to know God, he's 90.99% of the time going to work through a human being you know or through you. That's the way it works. When Jesus performed the miracle of Lazarus, it was a sign. You will see the glory of God. And he did it through a man. Come out. Some people believed and some people didn't. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus became a credible witness to that powerful event for all time. He did it then, and he's doing it now. Hebrews 2 says this, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced to us by our Lord. That means Jesus Christ as a human being on earth, who is God, but he did it as a human being. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him, other witnesses. God also testified by signs, wonders, and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What were those, what were those gifts of miracles distributed to? Who were they distributed to? Human beings. Human beings. Humans performed the miracle. They prayed. They did the prophesying. They did the delivering human beings. That's how it works. So, you and I, here today, Jesus operates the same way. People would have sought out Lazarus and Mary and said, did, tell, us, did, 
did Jesus really raise your brother from the dead? Were you really raised from the dead, Lazarus? And they could tell their story, and people would be convinced by it. We were given, we're given a message, and we're giving power to pray prayers, signs and wonders, and change lives. Chloe has just finished her PhD in the 604 miracles that have taken place in um, recent times in Wales. They're all documented. Let me tell you something about her PhD in those 604 miracles. One, those people who've received the 604 miracles, they're all alive today. They're all in, they all live in Wales. They all have names. They all have places where they live. And they all have families and people they know. Fact. It's a sign. Their story is a sign. Their story is an evidence. He, it's the same as he, he did it in the New Testament, and he does it the same today. We've just launched a couple uh, year or so ago a course called Imagine Heaven. You can go to imagineheaven.co.uk. It's a story of credible people who have names, have homes, have families, places where they live, and they've died, gone to heaven, come back again, and tell the story of what their experience is and how it relates to what Jesus taught in the Bible. All those people are signs that heaven is a real place and what Jesus said and the Bible teaches is true. You don't need another sign. It's miraculous from all over the world. Credible people like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's the point of it. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, today, and forever the same. He works the same way. Your story the miracle of your salvation, your changed life, the answers to prayer that you have received, the message and the understanding of Jesus and the people you know who had miracles and answers to prayers and changed lives through believing Jesus. This is the evidence that authenticates the truth about Jesus and the challenges for us who are friends and disciples of Jesus in this modern day is to be credible witnesses like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. To be known and stand out for what we know. To tell our story as they did, even if it has a cost. It says, Mary threw a big party in Jesus' honor. And it says, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of Jesus, but because of Lazarus, who'd been risen from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well on the count of him. You see, there was a cost to standing up. Now, our cost might be, oh, people might think, oh, you're a bit religious, a bit fanciful. I don't know if I want to hang out with you their opinion of us might alter or change a little. That's the cost. Let me tell you this, that is not a cost. That is not a cost. That's a cost, having your life threatened because you're standing up for Jesus. And for those of us, or those who have not yet become a friend of Jesus or chosen him, here's a challenge. Don't wait for a sign from heaven. God's given you plenty of signs. 
There's a whole stack of people in your town and your city and your community who have, have their lives changed by Jesus, who can talk about their answers to prayers and their miracles and the things that he's done for them and how real he is in their lives, not just over a course of day, but over a course of a lifetime. They're assigned to you that what Jesus talked about is actually credible and true. And there's millions and millions and millions and billions of people throughout the world. They have an account, a story, a miracle to tell, a message to share. So as Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to you and me, you're the light of the world. You're the image of God. You're the messengers. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine to others that they may see who God is and what he has for them. That he wants to be their friend, their savior, their rescuer, and give them the gift of eternal life, which the resurrection of Lazarus in a town in Bethany so powerfully speaks of. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you were so incredibly ordinary at work when you sent your son, Jesus, and when you, Jesus, came the normality of it, the humanity of it was so regular in many respects that even some couldn't quite believe it at first. <clears throat> but you would not compromise in your desire to use human beings to bring the rule of God to others on earth. And you are a great example of that, Lord. And I thank you for the Marthas and the Marys and the Lazaruses and the named people in, who became followers of you and people could knock on their door, seek them out and ask the question and say, is it really true? Des describe it and explain it to me again, what really happened as a sign and as an evidence and as a point of history that points to the credibility of who you were and who you are. And so I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to live lives in such a way that we too become credible, known witnesses in word and deed. And to those who haven't yet discovered you, I pray that through the credible witnesses of ordinary people, you will speak powerfully and reveal yourself as you have done so many times over the centuries. In Jesus' name, amen.